As you are turning in your Bible to the book of James, let me ask a very important question. It's simply this, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? Here we are, October 16th, Sunday, October 16th, gathered here for worship, coming now to God's Word, expecting to hear His voice, and I'm asking you to pause and consider, what is on your mind? What are you thinking about? Perhaps you're thinking about some problem from the past week, which is festering like an open sore. I apologize for the mental image, but there you have it, festering in your mind. You're anxious about it, worrying over it, something from the past week. Perhaps you're thinking about a relationship a blossoming relationship, a relationship that you hope will bring you the happiness you have been craving for years. Perhaps you're thinking about the latest score on whatever the latest video game is and how you might improve it. Can't wait to get back to it, your life revolving around it. Perhaps you're thinking, about how you can recapture your youth. Because let's be honest, middle age has taken you by surprise, completely off guard. Perhaps you're thinking about a new home, a new car, a new pet, a new dress, a new shotgun, and on and on the list goes. Perhaps you're thinking about the election. I pray not. But perhaps you are, and you're trying to figure out how it's possible that neither candidate is in jail. <laughs> perhaps you're thinking about the horror, the horror-stricken faces of shell-shocked children in Aleppo in Syria. Perhaps you're thinking about a perfect marriage would look like the one you've always wanted, Perhaps you're thinking about how you're going to cope with the grief, the loneliness, the despair, the loss, the abandonment, the frustration. Add to the list. Perhaps you're thinking about hunting. It is bow season after all. Playing golf. It's always golf season down here. Watching football or vacationing. Perhaps you're thinking about your sin because you really, really blew it this past week. Or perhaps you're making plans. Plans for school, plans for marriage, plans for work, plans for family, plans, plans, plans. I'll repeat the question where I began, what's on your mind? There's something. I'm going to hazard the guess that there are many things competing for your thoughts, your attention right now. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want God, I pray that God will capture our thoughts. That's my concern. My chief objective this day, that God would capture our thoughts. 
and by capturing our thoughts would bring everything I have just mentioned, plus plenty more, into perspective as we see God for who he really is. I, I want us to be clear on this, this wonderful truth that, that God is a perfect being. He's a perfect being. There is such an absolute perfection in God's nature that nothing can be added to it or subtracted from it. I want us to be clear that because God is a perfect being, he is satisfied in himself. He is his own blessedness. His happiness lies in knowing himself, loving himself, and delighting in himself. I want us to be very clear on the answer to this question. Do we have any effect upon this God, you and me? Really? Do we have any effect, impact, influence upon this God? Does he need us? Does he gain anything from us? Here's what I'm suggesting. Our effect upon God is that of a snowball hurled at the blazing sun. There you have it. It's hard to imagine down here. But picture the snow on that wintry day. And you have fashioned the perfect snowball. And then you look up to the heavens above. And you hurl it for all your worth at the sun. What is the impact of that snowball upon the sun? Absolutely negligible. It has no effect at all. I want us to be profoundly clear on this. We have no effect upon God. A.W. Tozer put it this way. We're all human beings to become blind. The sun would still shine. And the stars would still shine. Our blindness would have no impact upon the sun and the stars. Likewise, he adds, were every person on earth to become an atheist, it would not affect God in any way. Not in the slightest. God is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfection. To doubt him takes nothing away. He is a perfect being, completely happy, completely blessed, completely satisfied, completely content in himself. The passage of Scripture we're going to turn to to think on this. And again, remember our goal, our objective, our prayer. It is that God might capture, captivate our thoughts. The text we're going to turn to, of course, is James, the verse we're memorizing as a church. James chapter 1, verse 17. I want to begin reading, however, in the preceding verse, the 16th. James writes, Do not be deceived. All right? Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift 
And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so, of course, our chief business is verse 17. But let's begin with verse 16. It sets the context, sets us up nicely for what James is going to say in the 17th verse. Do not be deceived. Deceived about what? The commandment is a bridge. It's a bridge. A bridge erected, constructed between what? What precedes it, namely in verses 13 through 15, and what follows it, namely in verses 17 and 18. Do not be deceived concerning what? Well, what I have been talking about in verses 13 through 15. And what point has he made in verses 13 through 15? 13, 14, 15. Look, James' point is simply this. When it comes to sin and temptation, I want you to be clear on the origin of these things. I want you to be clear on where temptation comes from. I want you to be clear on where sin comes from. I want you to be crystal clear on where evil comes from. And so let no one say when he is tempted back in the 13th verse, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So where does this temptation, where does sin, where does evil come from? James looks inward, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, his own lust. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. That is inaction. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived. In other words, do not think for one moment that God is the origin of temptation. Do not think, do not let this enter your mind for one instant that God is in any way, size, shape, or form the author of sin or the author of evil. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Here's what you must understand. God is good. Every good gift, verse 17, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is good. Therefore, by definition, he cannot be the author of evil. Good and evil cannot come from the same fount. No, they have different sources, different origins. And because God is the author of good, I do not want you to be deceived, therefore, when it comes to the origin of evil. You know, it is the great fight. Think it through. This is fascinating. This is the great struggle. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and you think of the serpent, you think of the devil rearing his ugly head. He tempts Eve. What is the objective of his temptation when it comes to eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What is his objective? It is to make her doubt what? The goodness of God. You fast forward. We're no longer in the garden, we're in the desert. We're no longer in paradise, we're in the wilderness. And we're with this last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The devil again comes to him. You see, these stones turn them into bread. The objective behind the temptation is what? It is to make the Lord Jesus doubt, question, what? The goodness of God. It is the issue. 
It is the central issue in the history of humanity. And it has been, is, and will continue to be the primary principle objective of the devil himself. It will be to make us question the goodness of God. It will be to make us wonder whether or not God is good. It will be to make us hesitate. It will be to make us doubt. Why? Because we will never trust in something that is not good. All there is to it. And we will never obey what we do not trust. There are the links. I will not obey what I do not trust. I will not trust what I do not think is good. His objective is to undermine in our minds God's essential goodness so that we will not trust him. And not trusting him, we will not obey him. That's the garden. That's all it is. And that is what he has been doing ever since. And so James makes this point here in verse 17, that God is good without any question. Perish the thought that he can have anything to do with sin, anything to do with evil, anything to do with temptation. I know it creates questions in our minds. I know we do the math, right? We start computing. There we go. Off we go. Okay, I get it. Sin, evil, temptation arise from within. But where did that come from? Right? We want to know. Where did that corruption, that inherent depravity come from? Well, we can trace it back to its source. Again, the fall, as recorded in Genesis 3.15. And the entire human race corrupted, plunged headlong into sinfulness by virtue of Adam's and Eve's disobedience. Well, how did they fall? Because they didn't have that corrupt nature. Obviously, the temptation did not come from within in their case. Well, there we have the devil. And we know God created Adam and Eve, not immutable, but mutable, changeable creatures. The temptation is brought to them by the devil. They listen to the devil. They question God's goodness. They doubt God's goodness. They refuse to trust God. Therefore, they disobey God. Okay, I'm getting it now. But the devil, well, 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 well where did he get it from? Who tempted him? You ever ask that question? What, what is the origin then in the final analysis of sin and evil? Three invaluable words I learned close to 20 years ago. Actually, four words, but two of them form a contraction, so we'll say three words, three invaluable words. I learned them from R.C. Sproul, interestingly enough. I was at a conference listening to a Q&A, and it was fascinating. It was over. He left. And uh, out he came. And I was with a couple of other guys. And he made his way by. And we caught his attention, started chatting with him. And uh, one of these young guys, a Bible college student, said, Okay, Dr. Sproul, here's what I want to know, though. The devil. Satan. I get my sin. I get Adam and Eve's sin. But the devil. How do we account for it? How do we account for the final origin of sin and evil? And you know what Dr. Sproul's response was? Three words, which are beautiful. I don't know. We don't know. The Scripture is silent on the issue. And when we begin to delve into things we do not know, because God in His wisdom has seen fit not to reveal them to us, 
Well, then off we go and we open ourselves up to all sorts of problems. We do not know. What we know is this. There is a devil. He is real. We know all about his rebellion and his sin-filled pride. We know all about the first temptation and what it was that led Adam and Eve into sin, whereby they doubted God's goodness, they refused to trust him, what he said, and therefore disobeyed. We know that because of their sin, all of humanity is brought into a state of what the old theologians called degeneration or radical, total depravity, whereby we're overrun by corrupt desire. And so therefore, temptation comes from within. That is what we do know. And we know on top of all of that, as we work our way back, whatever the explanation, God has nothing to do with it. And he has no part in it. And we're absolutely certain of this because God is good. I want you to notice God's goodness from three angles as they're given in verse 17. Okay? You note-taking purists. You're gasping. There are four blanks. Does he not realize there are four blanks? We're only going to use three because I'm already checking my watch and four is going to be too much. We're going to give you three. Three angles at which we need to come at God's goodness and understand that He is good. Number one, God is essentially good. By essential, I do not mean necessary. Essential as in His essence. So God is essentially good. God is naturally good. Good. God is intrinsically, inherently, originally good. James' point is that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. The conclusion is what? The source, the origin of those good and perfect gifts must also therefore by definition be good and perfect, essentially, naturally. God is the source of good because he is good. God is goodness itself. Now, here we go. Are you ready? I believe I have explained this once or twice from the pulpit, but it bears worth repeating because it is a bit of a brain teaser. And it is not well understood today, but it is essential for understanding the very nature of God. What I am referring to is this great truth that the old theologians referred to as divine simplicity. All right? Divine simplicity. In speaking of God's being, they affirmed and they were right that God is a simple being. Not in an intellectual sense. Simple meaning what? He is an undivided being. We're not. We are divided beings. What do I mean? I am body and I am soul. There's a division. My soul, I can divide even further. I have imagination. I have memory. I have conscience, I have knowledge, I have will, I have affections. These are all parts, divisions of my 
soul. And so too with my body. I can divide my body further. I have a head. I have ears. I have eyes, arms, fingers, legs. All of these parts make up my body. And so it's not just that I'm divided into body and soul, but then you see my body subdivides, my soul subdivides, and then my body and my soul, all of these parts, actually bear characteristics. Don't they? And so when we speak of someone's soul, their memory, the memory might be good, it might be bad. The affections might be marked by delight, or they might be marked by sorrow. The person might be wise, or the person might be foolish. These are characteristics. So too, when it comes to the body, well, we might be a certain height or a different height. We might have a wingspan like this, or it might not be so big. We might be tall. We differ in terms of our, our height, our shapes, our sizes, the color of our eyes, the color of our hair, the numbers of our hair, the color of our skin. These are all what? Characteristics. Here's what I want you to get. None of the characteristics of our body or soul constitute what it means to be a human. Right? You can change any of them, and you do not change what it means to be human. You can be male, you can be female. You could have one arm, you could have two arms. You could have blonde hair, white hair, black hair, brown hair. You could have... Two well-working eyes or two poorly-working eyes. You could have all your ten fingers or maybe you've only got eight fingers. You could be a certain shade, color, or, or this color. None of these things in their variety have anything to do with what it means to be what? Human. They're simply characteristics of humanity. They are simply what? Here's the word. Attributes. Now, stay with me. When we take that word then and we speak of the attributes of God, we far too often are thinking in terms of characteristics. The attributes of God are not characteristics. He is a simple being, meaning he is without division, meaning he is without characteristics, or again what the old theologians called accidents. He is without any marks. He is really without attributes. He simply is. Are you getting this? And so there's Moses, shoeless or sandalless, I suppose, in front of the burning bush. If I go back to that crowd, they're going to want to know your name. And what is God's response? I am. That's it. He is a simple being. Therefore, when we say God is wise, that isn't really what we mean. What we mean is what? He is wisdom. When we say God is, is powerful, again, we're really not hitting the mark. What we mean is He is power. When we say God is holy, we mean He's holiness. When we say God is uh, wrathful or, or, or angry. We're saying that he is in and of itself anger. When we say that God is love, we're not describing an attribute or a characteristic. We are describing his nature. When I stand up here and I say God is good, I am not saying something about God. I am declaring who he is. He is goodness. 
Because he is a simple being. All you blossoming theologians, you young ones, here you go. Here's your homework. Because if you master these, you have theology proper. You begin with divine simplicity. You put on top of it divine immutability, unchangeableness. On top of that, divine impassibility. And on top of that, divine sovereignty. And you have the God of Scripture, not the God of evangelicalism which is a God fashioned in man's own image and the product of human imagination. Oh, we're speaking of the God of Scripture. The great I am. He is essentially good. And what is wonderful, whenever you dip into the Psalms, this is a recurring theme. The psalmist can't escape it. The psalmist can't get away from it, rightly so, because it is central it governs and it dictates all else. And as we read the Psalms, we discover that, the, that God is compared to that good which is necessary to us. So the psalmist says, God is life. God is light. God is food. God is water. God is rest. All these human experiences and images to give us but a, but a taste, a sampling of God's goodness. At times the psalmist declare or compare God to that good which is beneficial to us. So read the Psalms. Notice that God is home. Whatever comes to mind when you think of home, God is home. God is health. God is peace. God is fire. God is refuge. And on and on it goes. And as we read the Psalms carefully, we discover that they compare God to that good which is delightful to us. And so He is wealth. He is honor. He is wine. He is joy. He is pleasure. Because he is essentially good. It is who he is. God's goodness. It is, it is, I think, the most basic, some might take issue, I think it is the most basic truth we can affirm concerning God. He is, the, in the Latin, the summum bonum, the chief good, the ultimate good. Because he is goodness itself, uh, he is good in what he says. What do we call that? Truthfulness. Because he is goodness itself, he is good in what he does. What do we call that? Faithfulness. Because he is good, essentially good, he is good in his condemnation of sinners. It's a good thing. What do we call that? Righteousness. And because he is good, he is good when he is merciful to sinners who believe in the Lord Jesus. And what do we call that? His loving kindness. He is the chief good, essentially good. Here's the second truth I want to affirm concerning this great God. Remember this God, our prayer is that he might capture our thoughts, putting everything else in their place. God is immutably good, unchangeably 
Good. Look again at James, how he words it in the 17th verse. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down. There's the origin. Coming down. Descending from. What, why, did, why doesn't he just say God? No, no, no. Look at what he says. From the Father of lights. There's a hint of origin there, right? We'll come back to it. The Father of lights. Then he expands on that phrase, with whom, this father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Father of lights, what is James thinking of? I think undoubtedly in his mind, he's all the way back at the creation account. He's all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, and he is reminiscing, he is celebrating this great truth that God, the king of the universe, he created the greater light and the lesser light. The greater light, the sun itself, the lesser light, the moon. And he created all the stars in the universe. And so he is speaking of God's work of creation. And he is establishing the fact that God is the creator. God is the king. He is the father, the one from whom all of these things come. But he adds to it. He builds on it. With whom, in the rest of the verse, there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's still thinking of the sun, the moon, and the stars. What's his point? I think his point is simply this. I came up here at 7.30 this morning. Laura was in the truck with me. And as we're coming up the highway... What should appear, the clouds this morning were kind of fascinating, just really low to the ground and swirling around and moving real quick, opening and closing. And for a few seconds it opened, and what was there just above the horizon? A full moon. You know, of, of, of all the times I've looked at the moon and seen the moon, I have never seen it like I saw it this morning. I've seen a full moon before. I've seen a full moon at night, no problem, surrounded by stars. But where it was set on the horizon this morning and its brightness as there it sat and the clouds moving in front of it, I thought of this text. Because you see, just as the moon gives off light at night, uh, the sun gives off light at day. The stars, there they are giving off to varying degrees their light. It's constantly changing, isn't it? It's in a constant state of flux, the most obvious being the transition from day to night. There is this great shadow cast upon our side of the earth anyway from around 7.30 in the evening to about 7 o'clock in the morning, and on and on and on it goes. And then on top of that, occasionally we experience lunar eclipses and solar eclipses. You see, in these things, the sun, moon, and stars, there is this constant movement and this constant change. What is James' point? God isn't like that. He is the father of lights. He set them all in place and in their orbit. And with him, there is no variation. There is no shadow due to change. This is his immutability. He does not change. J.I. Packer identifies four areas 
in which this is so important. Oh, what God was, he is. And what God is, he will always be. Therefore, God's life does not change. No alteration. God exists forever. And he is always the same. He does not grow older. His life does not wax or wane. He does not gain new powers, nor lose those he once had. God does not mature. God does not develop. God does not get stronger or weaker or wiser as time goes by. God cannot change for the better, says A.W. Pink. God cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. If he could change for the better, then he would not be perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. God's life is immutable. Packer adds a second category. As God's character does not change, in the course of human life, tastes and outlook and temper may change radically. A kind, equable, Individual may turn bitter and crotchety. A man of goodwill may grow cynical and callous. But nothing of this sort happens to the Creator. He never becomes less truthful or less merciful or less just or less good than he used to be. The character of God is today and always will be exactly what it was. A third category, God's truth does not change. The words of men are unstable things. Like trying to hold water in your hand. Almost impossible. But not so the words of God. They stand forever as abidingly valid expressions of his mind and thought. No circumstances prompt him to recall them. No changes in his own thinking require him to amend them. Fourthly, God's purpose does not change. As God is both omniscient and omnipotent, there is never any need for him to revise his decrees. What he does in time, he planned from eternity. And all that he planned in eternity, he carries out in time. And all that he has in his word committed himself to do, he will infallibly do. And the fifth category we want to add is this. God is immutably good. He can't be anything else. He is goodness by definition. He is goodness itself. And his goodness does not change from yesterday to today to tomorrow. You know, there is, there is an important, there is an extremely important word of application here. Let me put it to you by way of a question. What do you think will make you happy? I mean, finally, what's going to get you over the hump, so to speak, and make you happy, give you a blessed life? When I finish school, Then I'll be happy. 
When I get out of the home, then I'll be happy. When I get married, then I'll be happy. When I get promoted, then I will be happy. When I have three children, then I will be happy. What's the problem with happiness when it is rooted and transfixed, transfixed on earthly things? What's the problem? These things, say it, change. And the moment we've got one is the moment we want another. The moment we've arrived at what we think will make us happy is the very moment our definition of happiness changes. Happiness is not found in changing circumstances. True happiness is rooted in an unchanging God. God, we read in Ecclesiastes 3.11, has put eternity into man's heart. Did you realize that? You have a sense of eternity in your heart. I have a sense of eternity in my heart. Do you know what that means? Nothing in this life is ever going to satisfy it. The only thing that will satisfy it is God himself. Pascal wrote, the infinite abyss of the human heart. The infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. He is immutably good. The third angle from which I want to come at this verse is as follows. God is beneficially good. And so he's essentially good, his nature, immutably good, unchangeable in his goodness. And therefore he is beneficially good, meaning what? His goodness is for our benefit. How does James open the verse? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Three examples quickly. Our time is moving on. The first is this. First example, demonstration. Let's put it this way. Forget the word example. First demonstration, first manifestation that God is beneficially good is creation itself. Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything he had made. And behold, it was very good. And so I enjoyed the sun there on the horizon this morning, uh, the, the moon on the horizon this mor earlier this morning. I enjoy the, uh, the sunset. I enjoy the flowers in spring. I enjoy the rain at times. Depends on what mood I'm in. I enjoy the deer scurrying across the field. I enjoy the birds, not as much as Mark Phillips, but I enjoy the birds. I enjoy all of these things, and I receive them as what? A clarion call, a proclamation, a declaration that God is good. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. It's manifested, secondly, in His providence. Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. I enjoyed breakfast this morning. Where did that breakfast come from? Back it up, and I don't mean to Brookshire's. Back it up. Keep backing it up. Keep backing it up. And finally, where did that breakfast come from? It is an evidence, it is a manifestation of the Creator's ongoing care over this creation and His provision for us to sustain our lives. How many breaths have you taken this morning already? 
How many breaths have you taken as we've gathered here for worship? Understand this. Each is a perfect and good gift coming down from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Thirdly, we see that he is beneficially good in his work of redemption. We could go to many places of Scripture. Listen to Paul's words in Titus chapter 3. When the goodness, catch it, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. When did the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appear? It's a reference to the incarnation. It's a reference to Jesus Christ. And so Paul, he's waxing eloquent here, quite poetic in many ways, isn't it? He is describing the Lord Jesus as the living personification of the goodness and the loving kindness of God Almighty. And so when this goodness, when this loving kindness appeared, entered this earth, this world, took to himself our humanity, what happened? He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Loving kindness. Here we arrive at the heart of the matter. The goodness of God, he who is naturally good, immutably good, beneficially good. That this good God has made provision for the salvation of sinners. Those who are rebels at heart. Those whose sin is what? In its very nature. A rejection of his goodness. That he manifests it to such a degree at Calvary's cross. That there the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one, becomes unrighteous. There the Lord Jesus Christ, the holy one, becomes unholy. As our sin is reckoned to him. And this God who is good, what does he command us to do? He commands us to believe in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from our sin, our disobedience that flows from what? Our lack of trust in him. Our lack of trust in him, which flows from what? We doubt his goodness. We doubt his goodness. Why? Because we've listened to the father of lies, who has been a liar ever since the beginning. And as we believe in the Lord Jesus and turn and repent of our sin, to know that God, this good God, receives us not on the basis of works of righteousness that we think we have done, but solely on the basis of his mercy. He is good. George Mueller understood this. We're back in the 1800s, German, living in England. Started all those orphanages, right, in Bristol, England. And Mueller understood this exceedingly well. He lived a difficult life. Suffered the loss of three children. Endured seasons of unrelenting physically, physical pain. And outlived two wives. When his first wife passed away, he preached her funeral sermon. And his text was Psalm 119, verse 68. O Lord... You are good and do good 
Brothers, could you imagine preaching that at your wife's funeral? Lord, you are good. And you do good. His little sermon consisted of three points. Here they are. Number one, the Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. His second point was this. The Lord was good and did good in so long leaving her with me. And his third point was as follows. The Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. Why? Because this was a man whose faith was transfixed by that text in Titus 3. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared. And when he appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of anything we had ever done, but according to his infinite mercy. Do you believe God is good? I suggest to you, there is no more important question than that one for us to answer. Do you believe God is good? Yes, God is good in earth and sky, from ocean depths and spreading wood. Ten thousand voices seem to cry, God made us all, and God is good. The sun that keeps its trackless way and downward pours its golden flood. Night's sparkling hosts all seem to say in accents clear, that God is good. Yes, God is good. All nature says, by God's own hand with speech endued, and man in louder notes of praise should sing for joy that God is good. For all thy gifts we bless thee, Lord, but chiefly for our heavenly food, thy pardoning grace, thy quickening word, these prompt our song that God is good. Our Heavenly Father, with one voice and with one heart, we declare it this day that you are good and you do good. May you impress your word as we have meditated upon it. May you impress it deep within us. And may the implanted word bring forth much fruit for the edification of your people here, for the furtherance of your kingdom among us and beyond us, and for the glory of your matchless name. In Christ's most excellent name, we ask it. Amen.